Hello and welcome to the fourth and probably final Statsbomb World Cup podcast in which we review the World Cup now that it's finished. With me is... Oh, I'm Ted Knutson. Sorry. I was trying to process that statement. <laughs> well, it's over now, Ted. You know, <laughs> there's, there's a couple of matches left, one friendly, and then they'll decide it, who, who wins it. Did it come home? Well, you kind of... It kind of booked tickets, and then <laughs> then they cancelled the flight, I think, or something. But so it didn't quite make it. Classic Ryanair. Oh wait, that's Irish. Yeah, no, it didn't. <laughs> British Airways, maybe reliable to a point. But yeah, it didn't get there, which was a mild shame, I guess. Although well, let's talk about this game. Like, this is an interesting game, and we'll we'll talk about both games, in fact, because um, you know it is a World Cup podcast, and that's what we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first half. This is this is a shining moment here. Tell me about it. Well, the first half was fine. I mean, you know, they obviously took they obviously took the lead with a free kick, which is a surprise of nobody. And there was a, a chance for Kane that he missed, and uh, what have you. And they looked relatively comfortable, and Croatia just didn't look like they were at the races at all. Um, yeah, Croatia didn't seem like they were quite awake, and they had a lot of dysfunction. And um, what's interesting, though, is is like the halftime adjustments in this game like really mattered in a lot of ways and and the adjustments throughout the game actually really mattered but yeah i thought england were, were very good for for the first half um you know they're still england they still have a bit of ropiness at the back um they play they play sort of the the higher gum up the the middle game as opposed to like sort of a, a middle block or whatever but i thought they dealt really well with uh croatia's sort of softer press and um I thought the ref let a little too much go on. Like there should have been some cards there. Yeah, no, that's a good point actually. Um, uh, Tom Lawrence mentioned something about this the other day. He was saying, he was saying like, you know, there's been a bit of a, a bit of a reluctance to give cards out, and of course there was very few, what, no red cards for like, you know, violent conduct in the whole tournament or something. And it felt very, very much. Obviously, the Columbia game felt a bit like that. That was all sorts of stuff going on. And yeah, last night it just felt like. Two or three yellow cards at choice moments would have just calmed the whole thing down a little bit, and they never, they never kind of came. In, well, you know, and they were deserved too. Like Croatia mm. decided to just start taking taking bits out of out of England to to make sure that they they couldn't like the skilled players couldn't beat them, and you know you need to you need to ref back against that a bit, and and you need to you need to do that early on because otherwise you're setting a, a you know a standard that says that you can you can hack and foul and whatever. And I think that, you know, it did cause some problems for England. You know, it probably made them a little tired. Who knows, like, what Sterling's fitness was like um, in there. But we'll get to that, like, fitness is generally in a bit, too. Um, so they, I think the first half was good. And obviously they scored off of a set piece. And that, I thought the, the set piece was constructed really well. Like, really dense screen. Uh, gave Trippier a huge area to, to aim for. It wasn't anywhere near the corner. And that's kind of what we talk about when we talk about screening the goalkeeper and, and just creating much more a much bigger target for you to be able to successfully score goals in. If you can't pick up the ball, like, it doesn't matter if, you know, if, if it goes right past you. And it, it often does. So Yeah, the keeper was absolutely nowhere on that. And, you know, looking back on it, you think, like, well, Okay, <laughs> maybe you could have got, got a little bit closer, but yeah, if you like, if as you say, like you know, screening was effective, and they kidded him. Well, I think until we started talking about this, people would have just blamed the goalkeeper. Like, why didn't you move for that? But like now, you start to understand that there's a whole process behind this, and there is a bit of science in, involved here, saying you know 
time and, and distance are, are the same on free kicks, and you know the more more time you have, or the less time you give the goalkeeper to make a reaction, the the less distance he can cover, the bigger the the target you get to aim for is. Like we've we've changed the discussion around around direct free kicks, and in, in a way that I think is you know positive for the game. Um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, anyway, so England went up, went nil up. We go into halftime. Lots of everybody smells of beer, eau de eau de parfum. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then what happens? Yeah, well, they just lost control entirely. Really, they just it, they, 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 it turns slowly into a, a rather typical England tournament performance, where the kind of ideas wane and the passes stop linking up. And and once Sterling went off, uh, yeah, it just didn't it didn't happen at all. You know, Rashford is is willing and eager, but he just they just lost that kind of outboard. Um, Wait, I think it's a very different skill set, and this is a we, you know, there's Sterling talk happened. I, I think James is quite bored of it, but I think it's it's worthwhile to talk about why we thought he was so important in the early matches and why that wasn't necessarily obvious to other people. And the one of the big issues with England for this tournament is playing the ball through midfield. Uh, they just didn't do it very well, and that results in a lot of issues on the attacking end, which obviously England had from open play. So what you're not seeing is you're not seeing the midfielders sort of take up space. You're not seeing intricate passing through the midfield. And I think this is a bit intentional, uh, and this is systemic, and, and actually like Southgate needs to work on this uh, yeah, as, as they continue on. But what happens is you've got Lingard, who's pretty good at, at moving the ball with with United. You've got um, you've got Delhi, who often interchanges and is pretty good about it as well. But their primary job is to act as defenders in the in the system. Uh, they destroy, they destroy, they destroy. Um, and and if you're so worried about that, so that you don't want to progress, and you do have to, you're a little hamstringed by the fact that that Henderson, as good as he is, is not fast. So like you're not dealing with Ngolo Kante who just like he he cleans up for a lot of mistakes like other people's positional mistakes Ngolo Kante is amazing at fixing. Um, Henderson doesn't have the legs for that. I think he had a pretty good tournament overall. Sometimes he looked a bit slow and a, and a bit leggy, but overall he was fine. But <clears throat> so what you have is essentially how do you progress the ball? And this is this comes before all the XG stats. You cannot generate XG if you cannot progress the ball. And so how do England progress the ball? And how did they do it successfully? How did England progress the ball? Um, well, they kind of stopped in the end, but <laughs> yeah, no, but no, no, that part though. No, 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 about, no, Like when they were successful at progressing the ball, what Use, happened? Well, basically, he was using Sterling as a, as a, you know, using his legs and his nous to, you know, sprint off. He, I think he, he received more balls than anyone else high up the pitch. I mean, they did but in in space. He's impossible to deal with for a single mm. defender. He just is like you. He's he's quick. He's tricky. He's got that pause. And that pauses what beats defenders. It's not necessarily purely his pace. It's the fact that you don't know when he's going to pause and, and blow past you or whether he's going to blow inside you or anything like that. So basically, they use Sterling as their successful transition into the next phase, which is usually the opponent's half or, or the final third. And the big problem here is the, the times that Sterling was subbed off, England lost that. So when England went ahead... They would often use Sterling as a as a as a as a second forward, and that was interesting because he can terrorize uh, defending uh, back lines. Worked against Sweden. It's it's a pretty good strategy overall if you've got the lead and you think that you can you can run against the back line. But again, the problem there is you lose by going so aggressively for that. 
you lose your transition from uh, from the midfield. And Sterling gets to do a lot of that type of stuff. When they sub him off, they sub on somebody like Rashford who doesn't have that same ability. Like, if you can get the ball to Rashford wide, he can create problems. But getting the ball and having it stick is the issue here. And that is the thing that, that England had issues with the entire, uh, the entire tournament. And I think that, you know... It's something they can work on. Obviously, you would work on it, and it needs to be fixed. They have some pretty decent midfielders off the pitch, but like, how do you create that without creating sort of instability on the defensive end? Is the question. Uh, the only like, if you look on that bench, who has the same skill set as Sterling to be able to do that? Hmm. Maybe Loftus Cheek. Maybe Welbeck a little bit, but probably not as good on the ball. But you know, you know, he's going to run for you, and you know, he's going to like. Yeah, it's tricky. I, I don't know. It's um, I my personal thought on this is is like they they like Sterling played up played as a centre forward. Like Sterling isn't really a centre forward. Like if you look at the, look at his season last uh, last season especially when you know he obviously transitioned into being more of a forward than like a kind of uh, an attacking midfielder kind of winger type and he scored all those goals. He played either right wide right or wide left in mainly in a, in a front three with a you know a central striker and, a, and someone else doing the work on the other side. He was mm-hmm. very much in a, in a front two and this 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 hasn't really been touched on I don't think too much. He was learning a new position in this tournament to to some regard. He has played up front at times but very sporadically compared to what he right. usually does yep. and um, I don't think like I think especially with the, the, the method that we were playing like I don't think England in a short tournament summer tournament you know hot conditions quick turnarounds you know same team going out again I think it's hard to keep up the press and to keep up the work rate deep into games and I think we saw that uh, at least in definitely in the Columbia game as well and um yeah, just what you need, I mean, what England need is someone to pass the ball in midfield, but I think keeping the two players up front, just, you can't just replace Sterling for Rash, uh, Rashford for Sterling and expect the same outcomes as we just discussed. But also, I think, you know, you need to, like, be pragmatic and bring one of those players, uh, you know, if you're going to make substitutes, like, don't swap them like for like, or, you know, intend Or change like the tactical like. back, yeah. right? So, bring, so bring someone when England back. went ahead... Sterling became a second forward, but before England were ahead, he wasn't, and and like that's kind of a, a crucial issue, and you know that's that's where, you know maybe you're looking at somebody that plays more of a ten at least in possession, and then out of possession he can have a different defensive role, and that's where Loftus Cheek I think actually sort of would have been pretty interesting because he is a, a very like you look at him standing next to his teammates and then also his what he can do, and he's just a very difficult uh, matchup defensively. I think he's got uh, he's big enough and strong enough, but also quite a good dribbler that he could create some of that. But yeah, like so basically what happened for England was they, they just stopped being able to transition and that meant that there was more and more pressure coming back. Young's legs like clearly were dying um, yeah. in the second half. Like that so the, I think the you know one of the other big things about about um, Southgate, like you know, good feeling around it and everything and, and loyal to the guys and everybody's very positive. But I think the the two things that you see that you need to be worked on is one the attacking transition going going forward through the midfield, and then two you know his in game work like needs needs some work and and somebody needs to to either be on the bench that can talk him through this type of stuff 
or he needs to you know study pretty hard and, and aggressively on how to make tactical shifts inside of a match along with the substitutions to, to sort of keep up with how the match adjusts the substitutions were terrible i mean I, i'm not i don't want to be down on england you know this is this is, I'm, I'm trying to be pragmatic about this it's, it, it's been a fun tournament and like you know they've exceeded expectations but there are obvious things that like you know just didn't work as well as they could have and you know the idea is that like we've done as much preparation as possible so right okay if that's what england does now then these are other things that we could also look at and the substitutions were abysmal i mean they didn't make a sub until after the 80th minute in the Columbia game and I think what was it Deli Alley in the first game was like carrying a knock for half yeah. an hour or more and it's like, yeah, it like okay, at some point you've got to like you know like get players off and uh, to be honest I think it was decisive yesterday you know Walker took one in the nuts and was just it just wasn't in any good shape at all uh, yesterday and he he got left on and you know for a long time and eventually kind of like recovered but you know in that time i think it was relatively soon afterwards that i mean it's these are these are the fractions that count you know that um Perisic nipped in in front of him and scored that goal which could easily have been ruled off for a high foot let's say but mm-hmm. but wasn't and yeah young obviously young was getting flayed alive out there um, well, I thought Young was struggling, but also part of his struggles were were the fact that Sterling slash Radford had shifted to that second forward spot, but had not defensively shifted back. Yeah. And so what happened was Croatia spotted it, and they started to attack in that hole on the right-hand side. And Versalco just had open crosses regularly. And how do you adapt to that? You either need to have an eight that might be a little tired already, push out wider and cover that, which creates an inside space in, in like the half space, which is way more fucking dangerous because you've got Rakitic and, and Modric who are, who are the ones that sit in that space. Or you need the, the forward to shift back. So anyway, these, these are the type of tactical adjustments inside of the game that really started to matter. And I think that's kind of what, what broke things down at the end. The other question is, like, why did Croatia not get tired? Because this was their mm-hmm. third extra time, and man, they still had legs. Like they were motoring the entire time. I mean, I guess they they wanted it more, but you you think of all the games that you have seen over the course of this period. Like think of those exhausting Premier League FA Cup games, and at the end of the game, how tired are they after like six games of back to backs over the course of three four weeks? They are knackered. Those guys can't even move. Look at Croatia in extra time of this game and. They looked fresh. I guess they just prepared best, Ted. Guess so. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying anything about anything, but yeah, the, you know, I, that seems physically unusual versus all of the other things that we have seen in football in recent times. Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> well, yeah, well done, Croatia. Good on them. No, it's, look, they're great. <laughs> they were definitely the better team in the in the second half and into the uh, into the extra times. I thought they, you know. On, on the face of it, I thought they deserved it. I thought England could have done some things to, that could have adjusted and, and done that a little better. Obviously, a bit unlucky not getting the second goal in the first half as well. Like That, that was there. Um, <laughs> the narrative is just so crushing. Like One one week, people are like, don't let Sterling shoot. or St- He's too fucking selfish. He should have passed to Kane. And then the next week, Kane misses a, a, an easy goal. And then he doesn't pass to Sterling and square to Sterling. And you're like... Okay, the narrative is now flipped, and Man. the identical thing that you said that came before is now inverted. <laughs> it's so dismal how quickly the the, the tribal partisan club like <laughs> club loyalties have come back as soon as England are out. I don't know. I think if if we're going to review like the just England in general, like a lot of fun, great tournament, but like this this is as good as they are. If they'd have got to a final, or if they'd have somehow won it, 
that would have been that would have been a Leicester winning the Premier. No, I, I mean not quite that, <laughs> but it, it would have been a bit unjust. It, and it would have kind of uh, just changed the narrative of like what the England team is like. Almost too much. There's enough there. They've got enough to build on to to say like right actually yeah we can we can get our, get organized we can go into a tournament we don't need to be scared we need you know we can maximize our resources and we can do as well as we can we can and, use set pieces in order yeah. to overcome a lot of difficulties and and allow us to play a more defensive system than we might otherwise and hope that you know we can nip goals there or that our talent creates itself I mean I I think you know, England England players had been a bit injured. You know, like Spurs are going to start the season a bit <laughs> rough because Delhi came out of that with an injury. Trippy has got a groin, and and Kane has been injured since mid-season last year and has never taken a break. This is like that Fernando Torres time where he powered through Liverpool and uh, and it was a World Cup. I think it was a World Cup. Injured essentially and never came back normal. Like we hope that Kane comes back normal, but he's been he's been dealing and and playing hard and long minutes. On an injury that has not healed properly. Yeah, he definitely got rushed back after, you know. And the players do his World Cup. You know, you you want to play and stuff. Of course, he wants it. It's just millions times. But you know, um, you as a Spurs fan maybe have a little concern about this. Yeah, maybe we'll see. Like, yeah, Trippier looked well. He didn't even finish the game, did he? So, and yeah, Ali's obviously carrying some. And this this three four weeks until the season starts. It's like, oh yeah. my god, but. Yeah, so that, yeah, I mean, that, everybody's in their third week of preseason now in in, in mm. like the not Champions League teams for the most part. Um, I had one one other thing that like really bothered me last night. I, I was listening to to radio, I think radio one in, in a taxi on the way home uh, from London, doing a bunch of stuff, and there was like some serious nationalistic nonsense about these guys and um, young English players and how do we get more of them and. Uh, about the Premier League, and we need to see more English players making up squads in the Premier League, which oh, I'm not yeah. sure is true. Gary then, Neville keeps going on about this 30% pool to pick from, and all this kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, okay. Right. Okay, but, you know, all of these players are really good now. We made it to the semis of the World Cup final, and when we had more players that were in the Premier League, like, we didn't. So, you know, the, the counter case is. is pretty strong there but beyond that they were talking about the young players and they need to be playing for Premier League teams and they need to not go to foreign teams and I'm just like that is absolute fucking nonsense and it's it's not just nonsense it's the most ridiculous example of stupid analysis that <laughs> I have heard throughout the, the World Cup these guys need to play first team minutes like that's what they need to play and it almost doesn't matter where they play you look at this squad and they have played in you know sometimes low, League 2 like League 1 minutes Getting minutes is a big deal. You need to be on the pitch getting minutes. I mean, look at Adamola Lookman. Mm. Would you rather he be at Leipzig or stuck under Sam Allardyce and barely getting playing time? You would rather he be at Leipzig, period. Yeah. Like, yeah. The coaches there are better for the for the modern style. They're better. He's getting to attack. He's getting to be aggressive. Like This is better for him, and he's getting more minutes than he had. That's what you want. It doesn't matter where they play the minutes necessarily, at least definitely not in what country. You care about them getting quality minutes with a good team under good coaches. And it just really bothered me that these guys were on Radio 1 saying these idiotic things that are just easily like not true, like easily falsifiable. And they were just allowed to do that before the biggest game that England have had in ages. It just... I, I had issues with that, and I was very frustrated, so I thought I'd mention it. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the thing, you know. There's, there's all these like, undercurrent, like nationalistic kind of things that surround like England thoughts, and um, yeah, it's best that they don't get too too far 
two well, yeah, you just, to this area. You trot the old guard out there, and they're allowed <laughs> to say they're, they're, they're just idiotic opinions that just clearly are not true. Like, England are here based off of all these things that are not true, so why are you pushing back the other way? Like, they get to play against better players every single week in training than they would otherwise if, if like, the entire squad was made up of British people. And it's, like, the Premier League is great, and the Premier League academies are great, and, you know, we need to give them some credit, too. Like, not, so we've got this question. Uh, we, we kind of opened it up a bit for questions. We'll get back to the France game in a bit. Um, but we're going to continue on uh, with the English stuff. So how optimistic should England be about the upcoming crop of youngsters? And in this case, like, Sancho's there, Sessegnon, Ryan Brewster, uh, Phil Foden, Jack Grealish, uh, Madison. Like, how, do, how should we feel about England and the youngsters and, and the future, you know? Well, really good because you know they keep winning age group tournaments and they're all coming through together. And I've seen a few things around, and you know, people who actually study this more in depth than than I do about like you know quality of players in age groups. And England's age group players are like insanely deep. Mm. <laughs> There's so many of them, and they're all going to come through. It's funny you mentioned Madison and Grealish there because they're 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 two classic examples of players that could go towards solving like then if they progress as one might hope uh they could uh there are two players that have moved to the premiership well Greenish hasn't got there yet but there's a lot of noise that he's all but done for Tottenham if they you know play decent minutes Madison at Leicester and um Greenish at Tottenham and you know perform to a decent standard these guys are going to be in the England squad you know it's it's almost like a natural transition and that funnily enough that's because of the you know the lack of options almost and you know they could they could go towards um you know solving some of the kind of like passing problems in in midfield and they've also obviously spent a ton of time in the championship you know they've they've played relatively hard football and kind of learnt learn the hard way there's still some you know some progress for them to, them to go before you know you're actually doling out the honours and calling them you know England you know England players but th- there's 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 an obvious route it's not a case of oh let's hope Jack Wilshire doesn't fall apart it's like no there are other players that are at the right end of their careers that are, are like slowly coming into coming into positions that actually might mean that they you know uh, have the sufficient experience to get England call ups so I, I thought that this question was really interesting because about four four years ago was when I, I was working with Brentford, like just started with Brentford, and we were looking at the German squads uh, around this time, and like the German squads are just always so consistently deep, uh, you know, U23, U21, uh, and we were we were like looking to potentially recruit from from these you know cadres because we knew that they had good training, and I think that England actually might have over the next you know two three years the depth of squad that says that these guys are better, uh, and that's that's like saying something. I'm not I'm not. You know, you know, you know us. We typically are very fair on this podcast, and you know, we've we love the England run, and but we were also talking about the problems that were there, and let's be honest about how how well they did. Like England's squad setup through the youth ranks is is spectacular, probably the best it's ever been, even back to the the class of '92, because there's more depth, and and all around it looks like there's tons of different types of uh, players. So to, to wrap up on the England stuff, where do they need to strengthen? Uh, positionally and or stylistically for Euros. Well, yeah, um, they need to find some midfielders. That's that's really really the bottom line. And but there's an interesting transition there because it, uh, you, you Southgate's been it, innovative enough to go with to go with his ideas and, and devise a method to get the best out of these players, which is like you know a problem that we haven't got 
like many passing midfielders so it's like right how do we build a team without passing midfielders and it kind of works and it, you know could could have been better could have been worse I just hope he doesn't stick to his method and he needs to continue to innovate and part of that innovation is trying to find passing and trying to get it into the team and that's going to be tricky but you know that's that's the only way that they can actually move forward or you know they might end up going into the Euros playing this same kind of same type of football which will probably only get you so far you know I think the like especially two years from now they need to have and this is maybe the biggest problem they have who's the dynamic six that they're going to put in like who who in England plays as a dynamic six that's actually elite level? We'll just have non-dynamic sixes and uh, well, I mean, that's, get the dynamism elsewhere. <laughs> that's like a big problem, right? So so it's kind of interesting. This three five two is is Juve style with Pirlo as the the deep lying regista playmaker, and then you've got two aggressive eights. In this case, it's Ali and uh, and Lingard might be able to upgrade sort of the, the aggressiveness and the flexibility of Lingard. Uh, the Juve system was Pogba, uh, a very young Pogba, and then um, uh, Chilean. Hair Vidal, yes, uh, Toro Vidal. Um, so like that's kind of what it looks like. The center backs actually surprisingly not bad in matching up to that system, which is saying a lot because they had some fucking amazing center backs. But yeah, if you're looking to the three five two and if you want to continue on with it, like who's progressing the ball? Uh, doesn't progress to the wide players. Sterling has kind of played one of those roles. Where's the other one? You need to have at least two ball progressors, I think, uh, preferably that play both sides of it. Uh, but yeah, like who's who's in that six role? Because uh, it it shouldn't be Henderson in two years, at least hopefully not as a starter. But you look around, and, and I think that's the big gap for England right now. You don't have somebody that that either is a super aggressive destroyer um, with pace, or you don't have somebody that you know has the flexibility that you're looking for there. Anyway, it's a great tournament, and I did enjoy it, and hopefully everybody else can can enjoy it too. And it was nice to feel good about the English team for once. The Croatia or the Luka Modric. Uh, nonsense, like just s- statements that were really ill-informed about English press and how Croatia were underdogs. Like that's just not true. <laughs> like no one was talking about how England were going to trample over Croatia. Everyone was worried about England versus Sweden of all places. So I don't think the press was was characterizing yeah. England as world beaters at any point. Yeah, just to just to underline that. I mean, you look at the stat line of last night's game, and England were considerably second best. They you know created very few shots. Uh, Croatia tested the keeper re- repeatedly. You know, you, you can't look at it and say like, "Oh, they were unlucky." However, you want to d- uh, describe it. You know, maybe the maybe the two goals were mildly fortunate in ways for Croatia, but you know, they were they were the better team on the night over the the 120 minutes, and they went through. And such is life. Oh, and they need to build more variation into their set pieces because like that guy's <laughs> very stale and very easy to mark. Uh, and that's why people are like, well, why would you mess with something that's been successful? I was like, because if you're at all competent, you just know exactly how to mark this. And, you know, you double team <laughs> Maguire. And not only do you double team Maguire, but you basically find a way to undercut him. Like, you body him right before he jumps. And, like, that's the way that, that you keep him out of the, the plays there. If you do the same thing over and over again, like, you know, smart teams are, are going to make it impossible for you to execute. You've got you've to put variation inside of it. One, so that your best moves are, are more disguised. You can't key on them as much. But two, so that you get a chance to, to create decoys and open spaces in other spots. England were still very good at this, despite not, not you know, varying their, their play almost at all. But I think that if you add some variation, you make it harder to, to suss out what the plan is, you're going to be more successful. Like, well, 
considerably more successful in many cases. I think England, that, England could have had a second goal on that. That Stones one. Versaco had an amazing save. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so like you know, it, it was a great game. It was a fun, fun World Cup. I think that. Not, not to drag on, but I think that encapsulates everything about this England tournament because last week I criticised the lack of variation set pieces, and the very next game against Sweden, Maguire scored a header from a free kick or a corner. I can't remember which, and and that that encapsulates everything because it's like, yeah, look, you look at that outcome and yeah, you think right, we've nailed our process, and the important message there is that like just because you nailed your outcome does not mean you shouldn't keep working on your process. Right. They they have the talent there. Like They have almost a... Not necessarily from a left-footed delivery, but the right-footed deliveries were good. The heading talent is, is probably elite, and they have multiple mismatches across the pitch, whether it's Stones or Maguire or Kane or potentially Delhi, uh, all of whom are very big and strong. And so if you've got that type of talent, uh, you know, have clever set pieces vary the stuff so that they can't key on on Maguire every time, and you should have even more success. And it was it was you know a successful tournament, but like this is just the opening. Uh, don't think that you know you could do this with that little amount of variation inside the club ranks and get away with it because I I don't think you can. Um, I'm not trying to sell our program or anything. I'm just saying like having having been and worked on this for the last four or five years, like you know there were limitations. So France. Moving on, France. Mm-hmm. I like the France. juggernauts. I think the the key to France is while they've been entirely stoic and pragmatic throughout almost the entire tournament, the one time they had to turn it on, the one time they needed to dig themselves out of a hole, they were electric, and that was they against were, Argentina. They were absolute dynamos in this game, though. This is one of the best defended games I can remember seeing in recent times at a World Cup because Belgium brought it. Like they brought the noise and the thunder, and it was a great game. It was one of the best games that I can remember in a World Cup. You thought it was that good? I, I really did. Like watch, <laughs> watch them attack, and watch how good France were defensively. So like you have, you have to like kind of appreciate the defensive side of it, right? Just one for but the purists, Ted. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a purist, but like watching Umtiti and Varane in that match, and also Pogba and and Kante. And it's not really the attackers that, that I focused on. It was the work that these guys were doing. I thought it was electric. I, I think that you could go back and watch that game and see just amazing skill on both sides of the ball. And, and France like never felt like they were really going to break. And, and that's credit because you're facing De Bruyne and Lukaku and Hazard and, and like serious attackers that, that were bringing it full speed all the time. And France handled it. Yeah, and they've been good this tournament. You know, the Belgian attack has been as as good as any attack, really, possibly Brazil also. But, yeah, just to shut that down completely and, uh, you know, get your goal and win. It, I, I can see no other result in the final that France, that France beat Croatia. Um, it's 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 one game, anything, anything can happen. But they, they, just, they just have talent all over the pitch and an ability just to... Just to keep everyone at arm's length. They're just so good at that. It's 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 really, really quite I, exceptional. I didn't mention Matuidi, but I should have, because he was also fantastic in that match. And, you know, you look at, at a midfield that you don't want to face. I mean, Croatia are good, but I, don't, I think I would not want to face France more. Because, like, all of those guys are physical mismatches. They're all fast. And they're all pretty good. Like, Pogba can take over a game. It feels like when he wants to. Mm. Uh, the question is how often he wants to. But Conte just does the Conte job, and he's he's awesome. And yeah, I 
so France are, are basically evens to to win that, and I, I think that line is is perfectly fair. If it if it had been a quarter goal, like you'd easily be on France. Um, so yeah, I, I think looking at that match, I don't know. I I thought it was a great match. You you seem less than impressed, James. I think it was just frustrated because Belgium. I thought Belgium were going to bring it, and then they just kind of got shut down, and it kind of it felt like they meandered a bit after that, and I was a bit disappointed that it didn't, it didn't create the dramatic tension that I I wanted. I thought they were trying to bring it, and then you're facing like a lot of the best players that Belgium have ever produced in their prime, and I think you gotta you gotta give more credit to France there for for really shutting it down. Um, you know those eights of Matuidi and, and Pogba, that's just that's hard. Matuidi's been been awesome for years. Hopefully he's not continuing to show signs of concussion, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, that, that still doesn't seem seems to have been resolved. So there, uh, there was also hang on, I, on. there was also that. It was Olivier Giroud ruining one of the greatest World Cup assists that we would have, seen. like you would have remembered that one from Mbappe, like that that pass into open space, mm. just so pretty, and the finish wasn't there, so he doesn't get credit for it. Yeah, that was crazy. I mean, it, I, I I tweeted about this the other day about the it felt like you know we haven't got the breakout players. The world now knows about Mbappe, and that's really cool because you know football fans did and but you know the, the world has seen, has seen him play but yeah other players who've broken out in this tournament it just feels like it hasn't hasn't been that kind of and the Euros felt like that a couple of years ago as well it was it was. It's, I think the system is is all and also we we probably know the players too well nowadays that it's it's, it's genuinely scarce that you get yeah I, I think especially for, for like through. you and I and, and a lot of the people who, who sort of work in in the industry now like it's you're not going to be surprised very often <laughs> mm. I, I guess you're uh, Daniel Arsani or whatever. That that was a, a little. <laughs> yeah, my boy found it in being got a few sub minutes. Pavard's a good example. Pavard came, uh, you know, people didn't know much about him before he before he started the tournament, and obviously, like he could well be winning a World Cup before you know. I've, as France is starting it. right back, that's pretty. Yeah, cool. no, it's absolutely true. And he's not really a right back. <laughs> yeah. um, he's he's super flexible. So I'm, I've, I've mentioned this project that we worked on starting back in October. And uh, and we we sort of submitted the report on on Pavard as like one of the the future stars in in Europe like the day before he got called up for the French national team We're like eh, I guess uh, I guess he's out now <laughs> yeah the, the secret's out he was a centre back then wasn't he I think yeah anyway yeah we we still view him as a centre back but that's actually great right you've got a centre back that can play that's physically good you know he can, he's actually got shooting technique uh, passing technique but he's fast he's fast enough to play as a right back so. <clears throat> But yeah, if we, if we sit down and think, there's probably a few. We could probably dig a few a few players out that have, that have come through, and uh, someone like um, <laughs> players that are going to get probably going to get signed because they scored a couple of goals. Someone like uh, oh, what's his bloody name? Shit, <laughs> Cherishev? Him? Yeah. <laughs> in in Russia? Yeah, probably. Didn't he didn't he briefly play on some of the the big teams in Spain for a while? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he's got, he's had kind of sporadic minutes in recent years. It's probably not the best idea to go out and sign him, but probably someone will. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, from that perspective, just generally, do you think it's been a good quality World Cup in terms of play, or do you think that it's been, as many people are saying, like a poor quality World Cup? Hmm. I think the nature of international <clears throat> competitions is is that they're always going to like suffer in comparison to club football and the best club football. But I think from the perspective of like <laughs> what what could you expect it's it's been about as good as you can expect possibly a little bit more defensive than um is ideal um 
VAR's an interesting one. VAR seems to disappear. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if I mean? it's right, by the way. I'm not sure if, if like, teams adjusted or if they, if yeah. they like, pushed VAR early so that, like, they, they sort of enforced their message and then backed off of it or what? I'm not sure uh, what it is, but it's, it definitely it feels like it's, you know, just drifted off. <laughs> I think it was successful, though. Uh, this implementation was pretty good, and you could find, probably find like a slightly better implementation at the league level. Um, but I think that, you know, overall, I, I feel that, like the VAR case has sort of shifted back. You know, if there's a, if there's a continuum there, uh, especially after the Bundesliga season where it was like very messy and very slow, uh, weird of the Germans not to implement something efficiently. Um, mm-hmm. But... You, you bring it back this way and you're like, no, this is this is a better implementation, better than the FA Cup, certainly. And if you get the implementation right, then the technology and the review should should work and, and be comfortable for fans, not in a bad way. Yeah, I mean, if, if, you, if you're the Premier League and you're thinking, right, we need to make a decision on this, like, you can look at the World Cup model and be like, yeah, okay, that works, let's just do it. Whereas before, you've probably still been like, right, I've got 50% yes, 50% no, I don't know what mm. to do with this. And that's, that's encouraging. Um, yeah. Credit to FIFA actually for for like sort of bringing in more technology in recent times. Like I, I'd heard from somebody who actually knowed and and worked with the the group that that Bladder kind of pushed along that um, the Lampard goal really did force them to to take on Hawkeye and and goal line review. And then you know the VAR stuff has has also continued to be pretty positive because soccer, I mean soccer slash football, is a low scoring game. I've been talking to too many Americans lately. Um, <laughs> it, it's a low scoring game, and you know the difference of an unjust goal effectively is is massive. It's it's enormous, and so like if you can if you can have fewer injustices inside of the the game, like you should push to that as long as it doesn't ruin the game. Well, and that, that VAR and penalties is, is the other kind of thing that was was an early thing. I don't know if that's slightly slightly eased off a little bit. I haven't seen quite so many. That's the twenty fifth penalty of the tournament tweets recently, so maybe they've dried up a little bit. But yeah, maybe it's quite possible that the teams have adapted. They've watched like they've watched and played in like two three weeks of football. They said, right, Jesus Christ, there's penalties everywhere. You do anything, it's going to get uh, put to VAR, and you're going to get sent off. So it's like, look, we just can't play that way. Yeah. I mean, not that everyone's suddenly super smart and is going to toe the line, but there's definitely an aspect of that, I think, that, you know, the game could have easily already changed in, you know, the space of one tournament just by, you know, the fairly heavy but fairly accurate implementation of, of the rules. But I think I think the refs have let quite a lot go, and that's, that's, that's surprising because normally it kind of... Normally, World Cups kind of go. They bring in new dictates, and things change, and people start getting cards for things they didn't even realise. Yeah, I, I thought the later rounds probably could have used a little tighter refing. Mm. Uh, I, I wish that it had gone that way a bit, but nevertheless, it's been a good spectacle. Uh, before we move off of the World Cup, do you think Rakitic's performance have gone a bit under the radar versus Modric? I'm not sure, actually. Um, probably just because I think his general reputation is is slightly lesser than Modric. Not not necessarily should be. They're both absolute top class footballers. Um, it's yeah, I, it's hard to say. What do you think? What do you think about Rakitic's performances? I think Rakitic is easy easy to undervalue and has been for a very long time. And he actually gets under he's been undervalued at Barcelona for quite a while too. It, like Barcelona are kind of odd in how they evaluate their players. They get superstars like Fabregas, like Rakitic, flexible superstars who then like fit in in a bunch of different roles. But then they never seem to to quite value them in the same way as the people that come through the through La Masia. But even I don't know. It's 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 
I think Rakitic has been really good. I think that Croatian midfield as an entity has been tremendous. And the fact that Kovacic doesn't get on is kind of... Like, a, poor, a poor guy. You, know, he's, you think he's getting more minutes at Madrid. You think, you think he'd be a hurt for the Croatian national team. And he just gets, gets 20 minutes now and then. But I, I thought you know, England kind of allowed it a bit, but really the Croatian midfield sort of forced themselves onto the situation in the second half and extra time last night. And going also like the it, it created... England trying to deal with that created more space for the wide players as well. Like the Versalco, Perisic sort of ended up causing all sorts of issues. Um, and full credit to them. I think Rakitic is a, is a super important cog and definitely underrated, uh, both in the World Cup and, and overall. Yeah, Perisic is really good, isn't he? I mean, they switched halves, didn't they? Uh, sorry, switched um, switched wings and then just caused trouble everywhere he went. And yeah, Versalco was, was, was a constant thorn in the side. But yeah, you know, credit Croatia. They've um, they've had a hell of a World Cup, really, and given us some given us some great moments. You know, tension all the way. The hammering of Argentina was, uh, you know, felt like a defining match of of all the matches. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, the World Cup's over now. Ted finished, gone. Well, I'm I'm glad we had that month. <laughs> <laughs> it, it whooshed right past. It really did, but it was really good, and it feels like a lifetime since it started. But <laughs> so, so speaking of things starting uh, oh, remarkably yeah. soon, less than a month, in fact, is uh, is the start of the Premier League season and the close of the transfer window. <laughs> yeah, man. So I was looking at some deals actually. There's, there's actually a lot of deals that have gone through across Europe. Yeah, but um, almost none of them have gotten any attention. Yeah, yeah. It's all broke up. And. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it, there has been a lot of business done, in there, but there's, there still will be plenty. Um, yeah, Chelsea are a good example. I mean, you've, you've but someone asks us a question about Jorginho. Uh, I'm slightly disappointed because um, I, I was kind of thinking that uh, Abramovich was going to run down Chelsea a little bit, and then they've got to sign Jorginho, <laughs> and it's like actually that's a really good signing and um, something they needed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's like, not. Jorginho Conte is awful to play against. Awful, awful, awful to play against. Yeah, you you look at that and you just think, damn, that's that's what you want as as your midfield. <laughs> so yeah, they've they've made it. They've made what looks like, or they are to make it what looks like a very very good signing there. Mm. And um, but that's in a way, you know, let's 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 be, be neutral about this. That's kind of good. He's not gone to Man City because <laughs> yeah, they didn't need the help. <laughs> Man City having just blown 60 million on Mares, which I, I guess that, it, that just feels like a luxury signing, really. You don't really need Mares, but mm, it'd probably be pretty good for you. Yeah, um, is he going to get you a few goals that you might not have had otherwise because like he's fresh legs and you get to rotate it more? And certainly he's difficult will, to, to mark. It will be interesting to see how much he plays because obviously Bernardo Silva's still there as a kind of like. You know, wide man option. Who probably the, the rotational option behind Sterling and um, Sane. And yeah, does he see um, Amaris as as a you know starter? But then it, I guess it replicates his time at Bayern as well, doesn't it? When he, he always had he always had uh, rotational options for Ribery and Robin, and was was quite happy to run like with you know Costa or was Costa there? Then? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Who he had like he had options, didn't he? he always had like four four or five like wide men that he could. But obviously that was because Ribery and Robin only ever play half a season at most. 
<laughs> whereas whereas the, the city but, guys don't seem to get injured. <laughs> no, that's that, that's true. But but Guardio did Guardiola did tend to to like running like a reasonably big squad of, of top quality players. Unusually, uh, who, so, who right. wouldn't? Who wouldn't? But you know, yeah, not not the kind of Mourinho. I've got fourteen trusted lieutenants kind of style. <laughs> but yeah, it's um. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. Yeah, but Chelsea, got, Chelsea are weird, right? Because like, sorry hasn't actually taken over, and it's the twelfth of twelfth of July still. Yeah, it, just <laughs> <laughs> what, what the hell's going on? I don't. Yeah, this is it. I think well, you know what it's like. The World Cup, right? you you've been inside football. We understand how it works. Like the World Cup comes along, and that just everyone's either on holiday or just like involved in that, and you know, slightly kind of like not not as on it as an empty summer. <laughs> then it finishes. And everyone kind of like it's almost like back to work, and everyone's like, right, okay, that's done. What players are we going to invite? Or what are we going to, you know, how are we going to plan the season? It shouldn't be like that at all. And you know, I'm simplifying for to to make a point. But um, yeah, suddenly the fact that you've got three less weeks for a transfer window as well, it just it in just, a World Cup summer. Yeah, it was just this just tiny little window to like to get organised. Like Tottenham are a good example. Tottenham haven't signed anyone yet. Although, like I say, Grealish is supposedly all, all but done but you know normally you'd have you'd have expected them to bring someone in one or two players in it by now and then go late in the transfer window for the others as they do but you know you, you've really got to be getting deals in motion sooner rather than later you know? so i'm not against this change i think this change is probably pretty good but europe didn't go along with it the football league did um, so like that's one one oddity, and this might not have been the summer to do it. <laughs> if you've got a longer timeline, maybe yeah. don't do it this summer. Next summer sounds like a lot easier to to implement. Um, it's it creates problems for teams, especially ones that are changing front offices and and stuff like that. Like this, it's going to be very very difficult. And again, I'm not sure. I, I need to double check this, but I'm not sure if the loan window closes at the same time as the transfer window again, which would create even more problems. Like they'll just be this raft of kids that don't go out until. Till January, uh, which which would again suck for the development of the youngsters, as, as we, we sort of started out this uh, this podcast. Uh, um, the other thing that is really interesting is this whole. You know, we're going to keep talking a little bit about transfer windows before we wrap this up, but um, I don't know if you know, but there, there was a guy that moved from Real Madrid uh, this week. Uh, it might have gotten lost in the World Cup information. I think his name is Chris. Mm, yeah, old player, past his best year. Uh, that's surely. a good point. It's a perfectly good point. <laughs> Yeah, so Ronaldo moved, and so, and now you look over at, at Real Madrid, and the Premier League clubs even are looking over at Real Madrid like, shit. <laughs> they they got to replace that. They need some star power. Who are they bringing? And it's a, it's a very open question. A hundred million pound down payment on like whoever they decide to focus the crosshairs on. Is, right, and it's not like they ever have any issues with money, <laughs> because apparently they just cash checks and win Champions Leagues. Yeah, and they yeah, and they and they haven't bought big for for someone. It's interesting, you know. Once they kind of like settled on Benzema, Ronaldo, and uh, Bale, they just kind of stopped going out buying elite forward. Ben, it's funny enough. Yeah, thinking about that, Ronaldo was probably the guy I thought would leave last out of them. I thought they, but Benzema was probably. I would, could have easily seen him going going this summer because you know he's, he's had a more difficult time. And and Bale uh, he's, also he's hinted not at young. It. No, he's, no, this he's is aging. Bale Bale was ready to go if he didn't get like more minutes. Mm. So I mean, really fascinating how they transition yeah. in, in, into this and and yeah, who they do actually go after. Obviously, talk about Neymar wanting to go home. 
I wouldn't go home, but you know, maybe return to Spain. But that's going to be a tough deal to get get over the line. And do you really want to? He's, I think he's 26 now. That's not that's not Madrid style, is it? Normally 23, 24. So they'll, they'll buy peak stars. They they clearly mm. stay within like the the peak star element. And and who out there is a peak star um, that you could you know sort of bring on as as somebody that you you care about? And you know, it's I mean, there are a few stars that that Real Madrid could not. Um, sort of like raise their profile again. So like Hazard, I think is one, and Hazard could definitely leave. But and he fits the, like the left side of profile, but it doesn't fit mm. the goal scoring profile. No. I think they need to replace Benzema. Uh, whether they think that Mayoral is is good enough or not, probably not. Uh, whether they have the current depth at, at forward, maybe you move Gareth up and um, you you could open up a right sided person. I'm not sure, but I think like Benzema is is probably sort of second tier, especially for that caliber of team. So like. Uh, a city's probably safe, but almost nobody else is. Maybe they bring in Martial. Like that, that would make some sense. Um, not the profile that they might want. You're not going to replace it, Ronaldo, though. Like you just, it's not going to happen directly. There is no one that you're going to get to replace him <laughs> no. directly. He's going to go and score goals for fun in Italy, I imagine. I, um, I mean, I, I mean, Neymar's the only one that's close. I, that's that's it. Mbappe is other sided. Well, Mbappe, mm. I think, is is kind of other sided. He does have the the skill set. Um, to be able to score that way, and he's really, really fast. But PSG can resist if they want, and uh, it, it would make a ton of sense <laughs> for Mbappe to become the highest sort of transferred player in the world at age 19, just because you know it kind of made sense last summer too. Um, not not the highest because didn't expect Neymar to move, but I remember getting a lot of flack from saying, "Yeah, I'm pretty sure that depending on whether you think he's." You know whether you think he's as good as he's going to get right now, or whether you need to price in that he might be the next Ronaldo, Messi, uh, Thierry Henry, which it looks like he could be. Um, you know, you're gonna you're gonna pay for that. Um, PSG paid for it, but like maybe they pay twice, or maybe Real Madrid pays and then uh, gets PSG out of their uh, their FFP hole, and uh, and everybody's happy. I don't know. We shall see. But yeah, that's it. Lots to happen in, in not well, much time. <laughs> exactly, lots and lots. Um, so, James, are we going to do some transfer podcasts this summer? Maybe <laughs> if we squeeze one in, you know, across the <laughs> across the three weeks, we might be able to get one in there or or whatever. These ones have gone down well. People seem to like the World Cup one, so um, you know, we, we, we're busy people, though, Ted. You know, we, we, can, we can always squeeze in half an hour somewhere. We can we can get podcasts done, and the the transfer ones are fun as well. It's a good good chance to evaluate what's what. So yeah, why not? Cool. All right. So thank you very much for listening to us. This is the Stats Bomb Podcast brought to you by Stats Bomb IQ and Stats Bomb Data. Um, and we'll, we'll transition on from the World Cup into transfer soon. I hope you've enjoyed this summer. We certainly have. And we'll see you soon. Hugh Ness and Dormer. Right. <laughs> <laughs>